a couple of weeks ago in the sermon I preached here, I tried to explain why it is that Christians, Christian people throughout history, uh, why it is we here at Emmanuel Church are so taken up with the Bible, uh, with Bible preaching, Bible study, uh, regular morning devotions where we study the Bible maybe privately. And in that sermon, I said something along these lines. As God's people, as believers in Jesus Christ, as participants in this particular local church, we are obsessed with and unapologetically fixated upon and wholly devoted to the Bible. Understanding its message, comprehending its contents, and conforming our hearts to its precepts and promises is really the summation of our lives. We hold this view of the Bible not out of religious convention. Uh, We hold to this view of the Bible not out of a sense of rote obligation. Rather, we are those upon whom the Scriptures have shone like a sun at dawn. Uh, We have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in the pages of the Bible. And all we've done is beheld and embraced and acknowledged the glory that's revealed in the pages of Scripture. So we can't help but return again and again and again to find that glory in the pages of the Bible. Revealed most perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ and His plan of redemption that is revealed to us there in the Bible. That's why we come to study the Bible today. That's why we emphasize so much the preaching of God's Word. Because we are people who are really obsessed with and fixated upon the Scriptures as God's Holy Word. Now this morning we come to one portion of God's Word in the book of Ephesians. And we're going to spend, uh, if all goes according to plan, about six to nine months opening up this book in detail. And uh, the goal is, first of all, that we would uh, simply submit ourselves to what God has revealed to us in the book of Ephesians as God's Word. We just want to come and embrace what we see there uh, in the book of Ephesians. But beyond that, I have a secondary goal, and that is to help each one of you as you study the book of Ephesians to just better comprehend its contents. Uh, It would be wonderful for me if we could all uh, have a sense of a working outline of the book by the end of this study, if we could all have a sense of the major themes of the book, if we could appreciate the various messages and things that Paul is trying to convey to us through the book of Ephesians. Now last week, in an effort to prepare for this series, we considered the formation of the church at Ephesus, the church that Paul is writing to. And uh, we have that recorded for us in the latter part of Acts chapter 18, and then in chapter 19, and on into chapter 20 as well. I'm not going to review all that material today. If you're interested in learning more about the background, that sermon is is online, or you can certainly read the text in Acts 18 through 20. Uh, But for our purposes today, I I won't review that material. But this morning, we want to actually come to the book of Ephesians, to the text itself. We want to actually get into chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians. But before we do, uh, there's sort of an important introductory question that I think we need to ask. Uh, What is the book of Ephesians all about? What is the message of the book of Ephesians? If you had to summarize its contents, if you had to develop a sentence or maybe just just one short statement on what the book of Ephesians is trying to get across to us, what would you say? Uh, Would you be prepared to to convey uh, a short statement that summarizes the book? One of my goals in this sermon, but also throughout our study of the book of Ephesians, is that we would be able to answer that question. If someone said to you, hey, I'd like to study the book of Ephesians, can you tell me briefly what, what is it all about? What is Paul trying to get across to this church and to to us through this book? 
So I'm going to give us a working definition. I want to emphasize it's a working definition. It's something that I reserve the right to, to fine-tune throughout this series. But this is something hopefully we can hang on to. We're going to talk about this in our small groups. We're going to talk about it uh, week after week when we come in here to consider this, this book. I'm going to give you kind of a more technical definition. It's still one sentence. Not too, too hard to comprehend. Uh, but, but a more technical definition. And then I'll give you kind of a more popular level summary. Okay, And you just use whichever one. Uh, works for you, okay? So what is the book all about? What is the message of the book of Ephesians? It is this. God has begun and is perfecting a cosmic work of reconciliation in Christ. That's the message of the book. God has begun and is perfecting a cosmic work of reconciliation in Christ. Now, what in the world does a cosmic work of reconciliation in Christ mean? Well, go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to take this directly from the purpose statement of the book, which is found in verses 9 and 10. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, it says this, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, and here it is, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Your translation might say, to sum up all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. What is God doing through Christ? He is bringing about a cosmic work of reconciliation. That word cosmic refers to the, what we call the cosmos, which is basically the whole universe. Things in heaven, things on earth. Ephesians refers often to the heavenly places, to the spiritual realm. It's not just us here in the world, in the flesh, but it's also in the spiritual realm. God is doing this cosmic work, this universal work of summing up all things in Jesus Christ. Now, I recognize that's a little, little abstract. It might be a little hard for us to wrap our minds about that. How, what is a cosmic work that's summed up in Christ? So here's a more popular level, uh, uh, maybe, statement on what the book of Ephesians is about. It is this, that God is making all things new in Christ. God is making all things new in Christ. He's begun and is perfecting a cosmic work of, of, of reconciliation in Christ. But a more simple way to put that is God is making all things new in Jesus Christ. And these verses, Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, and commentary on them, Curtis Vaughn says this. These words give Paul's description of the scope and content of God's purposes for the universe. In short, it is the establishment of a new order, a new creation of which Christ shall be the acknowledged head. So God is doing this great work in the world. He's doing it through Christ. It's a cosmic work. It encompasses heaven and earth. It encompasses us. It encompasses spiritual powers. He is making all things new in Christ. Okay, now with that in our minds, I'd like to give you what I understand to be basically the five major themes of the book of Ephesians. The five major themes. And we're just going to mention these again and again. My hope is that by the end of this study, we'll have these all down. That we'll understand where, where these themes are found. We'll be able to recite them together as part of understanding the book of Ephesians. If you're taking notes, I'll try to go slow through these five major themes. What are the, the major themes of the book of Ephesians? First of all... God is carrying out his eternal purpose in Christ. God is carrying out his eternal purpose in Christ. And we're going to see some of that this morning as we get into Ephesians chapter 1. It's all about what God has done before the foundations of the world. He is carrying out this great plan that he began, listen, before any of us were born, before any of our parents and grandparents were born, before Adam and Eve were born. He had this plan of redemption to carry out. And Ephesians tells us a little bit about that plan that God had prepared before the foundations of the world. Second major theme 
God is making individual people new in Christ. God is making individual people new in Christ. He does this by graciously calling them and by saving them. Perhaps you're familiar with Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God is doing a work by making people new. And as uh, pastor, I had the privilege of knowing many of your stories and many of your personal narratives. And you have testified of how God has made you new. How God has saved you by grace. You have experienced the actual work that Paul is talking about in the book of Ephesians. God is making individual people new in Christ. But thirdly, third theme, God is forming a new community in Christ. He's forming a new community in Christ called the church This community is made up of individuals, both Jews and Gentiles. It's made up of all sorts of people who have been reconciled to one another in Christ, who is the head of the church. One of the big things we're going to see about this new community that that Christ is forming, uh, it is to be marked supremely by unity. Mm. We talked last week about how uh, the first converts in Ephesus were probably Jews who were converted through the preaching of Paul and Apollos inside the synagogue. And Paul and Apollos would preach and And various Jews were converted, but it was a minority. It wasn't a large amount of disciples. And then uh, the Apostle Paul went into the hall of Tyrannus to that that pagan venue. And what he did there was preach the gospel just like he always had. And the word of the Lord prevailed. And the Lord Jesus, his name was extolled in marvelous ways. And there was really mass conversion that took place in the land of Ephesus among the Gentiles. So you have this interesting dynamic. You have these maybe old pious Jews who had grew up in the synagogue but always obeyed the rules, and they're converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you have these Gentiles, who we read were practicing dark arts, and, and, and they have their magic books that when they come to Christ, they burn in a massive bonfire. We talk about temple prostitutes at the temple of Artemis, and these people that would go down there and visit the temple and make use of those prostitutes. And now here they are converted to Christ. And I, I used the, kind of the illustration last week you might have sitting in the front row, singing the same songs in a worship service in the Ephesian church. You might have this this pristine, immaculate, uh, pious Jewish man. He's been, he's been uh, memorizing the Hebrew scriptures his whole life, and now he's come to recognize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and there he is worshiping God. And you have next to him uh, um, this haggard-looking old, um, formerly witch, okay? And she's been converted to Jesus Christ, and she just got done burning her magic books and tearing down her altars and, and platforms for idols, and she's there worshiping. And Paul tells us these two are to experience love and unity among each other. Mm-hmm. They're to worship God together. They're to be in the same church together. Well, if that's true of them, how much more so should it be true of us? Mm-hmm. Regardless of ethnicity, socioeconomic status, whatever your background is, if we are in Christ, we are united and we should be able to worship God together and participate in the life of the church together. That's one of the major themes that we're going to see in the book of Ephesians, probably most powerfully in the latter part of chapter 2 and on through, to, through chapter 4. Now the fourth major theme in the book of Ephesians that we'll see, and it's this. God is establishing a new moral order in Christ. God is establishing a new moral order in Christ. And this is primarily probably around Ephesians 4.17 on. We've had all this rich theology up to that point in the book, and then the rest is largely moral prescriptions, and it's probably summed up best. I just love this language. The ESV doesn't quite capture it, the the translation we use, but it says, Let him who stole steal no longer, 
Talks about those who fornicated, now let them be pure. Those who were liars, now let them speak the truth. Those who were consumed with anger, let them not sin. Let them not go to bed on their anger. There's a new moral order if you're in Christ. We're to live as those who have been bought by Christ. Those who are walking in love, walking in the Spirit. Those who have been united and attached to the Lord Jesus. There's now a new moral order for us as the people of God. And we are to walk as those who have been called by His grace and to live in holiness The fifth and final theme, you could probably guess it, I've already mentioned it a couple of times over the last couple of weeks, and that is this. God has drafted believers into spiritual warfare in Christ. God has drafted believers into spiritual warfare in Christ, in which believers wage war alongside Christ against satanic powers and evil forces in the spiritual realm. Now, I'm convinced that most 21st century evangelicals don't give a lot of thought to the spirit realm. Uh, Usually we don't give a lot of thought to spiritual warfare. We don't talk about satanic forces. We don't talk about spiritual powers in the heavenly places. That's all kind of some weird, um, older, crazy voodoo kind of religion. We're far more enlightened. We're far more intellectual. We're far more rational than that. Listen, if we don't embrace the real and true dynamics of spiritual warfare, we're the fools, not the Ephesians. Paul actually affirms their sense of spiritual warfare. And he says, that's right, you've been drafted now into a war. A cosmic war against Satan, against sin, against the flesh, against spiritual powers that are out to defeat you. But be encouraged, you war alongside of Christ. And you are now marching under his flag. He is your captain. You need to put on his armor. And you need to wage war against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. So that's the, the major message of Ephesians, the major themes. What's the, the major message again? It is that God has begun and is perfecting a cosmic work of reconciliation in Christ. Indeed, he is making all things new in Christ. And I won't survey those major themes again, but hopefully, God helping me, we'll repeat those again and again and again throughout our study of the book of Ephesians. And I hope that you'll see them as we go through the actual text. So now if you would, please turn to Ephesians chapter 1 again. This is... For me, anyway, a very exciting moment to finally come to the text, as we've been preparing to look at this book for quite some time now. Now we actually come to the text of Ephesians. And I'm going to ask, that we've already read it, I want to read again verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. Excuse me, before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Well, now, what on earth do we do with all of that? This is one of the richest, densest, theologically thick texts in 
and all the Bible. Listen to some of these things some, some commentators have written about Ephesians 1. Curtis Vaughn writes this, This outburst of adoring praise requires and rewards the closest study. Gigi Finley says this, We enter the epistle through a magnificent gateway. Armitage Robinson likens this text to a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and shifting colors. William Henriksen likens it to a snowball tumbling down a hill and picking up volume as it descends. I like this one from John Mackey. He says, This rhapsodic adoration is comparable to the overture of an opera, which contains the successive melodies that are to follow. And then again, Armitage Robinson says this, This text is like... The preliminary flight of the eagle rising and wheeling as though for a while uncertain what direction in his boundless freedom he shall take. It's compared to a snowball rolling down a hill, the overture to an opera, an eagle in flight. This is truly a marvelous text. Now it's interesting, we don't see this in our English versions, but in the original Greek language, uh, verses 3 through 14 is one sentence. About 202 words. Okay, so you can imagine... How fun my week has been, trying to piece this very complex sentence together. Uh, Because it's one very long and complex sentence, so jam-packed with rich truth, it's going to be very hard to expound in in detail uh, every facet and feature and doctrine of this text without losing the overall sense that it is a doxology of praise. And we get the sense when we read it, Paul is just gushing, just spontaneous uh, uh, with praise to God, almost like he doesn't even know what the next word is going to be. His pen is just, is just floating with praise to God. And though it's easy to read it that way, I, I'm not sure we should read it that way. In many ways, the major themes of the book are forecasted in this opening adoration doxology of praise that Paul gives to the Ephesian church. If we comprehend verses 3-14, through 14, we will comprehend the entire book of Ephesians. So it's worth considering in detail. I'll admit, I've gone back and forth several times about the best way to open up this text. This is what we're going to do. This is it's just what I've settled on. It's not the best way to get uh, at everything in the text, but this is what we'll do for the purposes of our studies. Uh, the next three weeks, or I guess Pastor Andy will come next week, so it'll be two weeks after that and this week. We're going to do three scans over these verses. Ephesians 1, 3-14. through 14. Three scans over it. And each time we do a scan over these verses, we're going to be looking for different things. So this week, you might see in your bulletins the title of this sermon, we're going to consider every spiritual blessing in Christ. So two things there. We're just going to look for every blessing we can find in Ephesians chapter 1. And parents, I encourage you to think about doing this with your kids, maybe later today or throughout the week. Look at Ephesians 1 and say, what what blessings can you see in this passage? And let's see if we can count them all up, okay? We're going to consider six of them today. Uh, So I'm giving you kids kind of a head start here in case your parents ask you to do that. You can can pay attention and hear the ones that, that I've listed. We're going to see every spiritual blessing in Christ on this first scan. And then next week, or excuse me, two weeks from now, we're going to consider uh, uh, the source of these blessings. Again, scanning through the verses and asking ourselves, uh, where is it that these blessings come from? What's the origin of these blessings? And then the final time we're going to consider on our third scan of these verses, the goal or the purpose of these blessings. Why have they been given to us? Why have we been given these spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus? Now, a number of great preachers of old have spent a lot of time in Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14. Uh, We're not going to do that. We're going to do three weeks in these verses. But if you're interested in a more detailed exposition, I want to encourage you. uh, Lots of guys preach on this text. Um, One one resource in particular I'll recommend to you, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous Welsh preacher uh, in the 1950s, spent about nine years 
in the book of Ephesians. Aren't you glad that we won't be nine years in the book of Ephesians? But he spent nine years in the book of Ephesians. And I think he spent something like 40 or 50 sermons just in chapter one. If you have a smartphone and you, you go search in your apps, MLJ Sermons, uh, you can hear those expositions actually recorded. Did you know that we have recordings of Martin Lloyd-Jones? And they're all there in this app. So I've been listening to those and trying to comprehend the details there. It's tremendously edifying. And I encourage you to go and check out that resource there on your, your smartphone. But we'll just do three weeks in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. All right, let's do this. For uh, two points we want to consider, the first is this. What are the blessings? What are the blessings? How many are there? What are they? And then our second point is going to be asking, how is it that we obtain these blessings? How do we come by these blessings, okay? Every spiritual blessing in Christ. So let's first enumerate the various blessings in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. First of all, we have election. Election. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. Now let's stop there, okay? Verse 3 functions as something like a topic sentence. We have in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You know what a topic sentence is, right? If we had a paragraph, the first sentence is often the topic sentence. So if I said, let's say, I was writing a paragraph, and the first sentence read, we went to the zoo yesterday. And what do you think the next sentences are going to be about? All the things we did at the zoo yesterday, right? We might talk about how we saw the monkeys and the, the elephants and all that kind of stuff, Okay. Well, this, this sentence in verse 3 is like the topic sentence of the entire doxology. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ, and we're expecting now in these next verses to see what are those blessings. And the first we're told of is really the fountainhead of all the other blessings, and that's election. Election. The Bible teaches that salvation in Christ is not the result of the will of man, nor the result of man's works, nor a result in any way of man's ability to save himself. In fact, the Bible teaches that man in his sin nature is utterly incapable of saving himself. And moreover, left to himself, he cannot choose God because he is a slave to sin and therefore will not choose God. Rather, the Bible teaches that salvation is grounded in the eternal purpose of God to choose sinners and to elect them. And we read Ephesians 1.4, before the foundations of the world. God is sovereign in salvation such that if anyone is in Christ, it is only because God acted, because God initiated, because God chose, because God elected, he predestined. If you're a Christian today, you are so because God moved to draw you to himself. God acted. And he did so, we read, before the foundations of the world. Now we could just gloss over that. It's just an extraneous phrase or something like that. But think about this, Christian. If you are in Christ... It's because before the foundations of the world, God had you in mind. He thought about you. He contemplated you. And his thoughts towards you, according to verse 4 and verse 5, were love. In love, he predestined us. Before you were born, God was contemplating you. Before the worlds began, he thought of Ben Allen and Wendy Cock and Brad Kinnison. He had you in his mind and his thoughts toward you were love. In love he predestined to you to adoption as sons. That is a profound thought. I don't know that we could even really comprehend that. But isn't it comforting to you, Christian? 
That my stability in Christ, my standing in Christ, my my place as a child of God is not based on my ability to perform. It's not based in my ability to make really wise decisions and to really get my act together and choose Christ. It's not because I was smart enough, good looking enough, qualified enough. It is because God had me in mind before the foundations of the world and his thoughts toward me were love. He called and chose and elected and predestined. And therefore, the reason I can have confidence that I will be in the faith on my dying day is because my status in Christ is not based on my will, but on the inflexible, unchangeable, sovereign will of God. What a gift to us that God has revealed this to us in His Word. I hope it is of immeasurable comfort to your soul to know that before the foundations of the world, God, if I am in Christ, God chose me. His thoughts toward me were love, and in love he predestined, and he worked, and he initiated. Now the second blessing. The second blessing in our text is contained in verse 5. It's adoption. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which, we, excuse me, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, most of you know I like to recommend books and resources I uh, always want to put together good resources in front of you, books that have been helped to me and helped to many Christians. There are a few books that I consider to be must-read books for the Christian. I mean, books that just every... If you're in the faith for 10 years or more, you need to read certain books. But th- that's a small list, okay? One would be like Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. All Christians should read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, okay? Um, very rarely when I recommend a resource will you hear me say, this is a must-read book. This morning I want to... Recommend one of those must-read books, though. This book is like, if you're in the way for more than a couple of years, you need to read this book, okay? It's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. No, Oh, I love it. So, so you've read it, I see, okay? Knowing God by J.I. Packer, must-read book, okay? In that book, toward the end of the book, J.I. Packer has a chapter on adoption. I think it is Christian history's definitive treatment on the subject of adoption, And in that book, Packer argues, he makes the case that the absolute pinnacle of blessing for the Christian is found in his or her adoption as a son or daughter of God. He argues that there's simply no greater blessing to the Christian. He even even starts enumerating other blessings. He says, you think justification is the best thing the Lord has for you? You're wrong. It's adoption. Justification makes you right in God's courtroom. Adoption invites you into his family, makes you a child of God. You're not just an acquitted and pardoned criminal. You are a child of the living God. It's the greatest blessing revealed to us in all the Bible. Listen to some of these statements from Packer's book, Knowing God on Adoption. I hope it whets your appetite if you haven't read the book. Packer says this, What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who God has as a father. Then a little ways down, he says this, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heirs. Listen to this. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. But it gets even better. Listen to what Packer says here. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his or her worship and prayers, his or her outlook on life, it means that he or she does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father 
is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. The revelation to the believer that God is his father is in a sense the climax of the Bible. It was interesting, I often think of this. God might have simply saved us in some judicial sense, some forensic sense that we use that analogy of justification like we're in a courtroom, God is the judge. And in justification by faith alone, he pardons us for our sins. He makes us right with God. He wipes our records clean through Christ and gives us his righteousness. And we walk away not as convicts. We're freed from sin. We're forgiven of our sins. And in a judicial sense, the judge is no longer upset with us. And it could have all stopped there. And that would have been wonderful. But God goes a step further. Not only does he deliver us from being convicts and criminals in his court, he brings us then into his family and makes us children. And what a a precious blessing. Now we could call God his father. He's not just the judge who is no longer angry with us. But all his ways towards us now are good as a father who delights to give good gifts to his children, who delights to communicate affection to them, and delights to have them close in relationship and communion with him. What a beautiful revelation adoption is to the people of God. I want to say this. Packer said that father is the Christian name for God. I hope that each one here had a wonderful father. I had a wonderful father. I have a wonderful father. He's still alive. I have a wonderful dad. Not everybody had a wonderful dad. And many Christians struggle with this notion of adoption, this notion of fatherhood. Thinking of God as a father, maybe perhaps your father was cruel, or your father was abusive, or your father was unloving or uncaring. I want to say two things to you. First of all, I'm sorry. From the bottom of my heart, my heart, excuse me, I'm sorry. No one should have a bad dad or a bad father. Fathers should be affectionate, they should be loving. If you had a bad father, we're prepared to weep with you. But the second thing to say is this. Your heavenly father is completely different. Completely different. His ways are good. His ways are true. His ways are right. He is full of affection towards you and love towards you. Your father loves you. And he will not disappoint you. He will not be cruel towards you. He will not disappoint you. Your father in heaven is perfect. And if your father in this life was a disappointment, your father now in heaven... He will never disappoint you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will love you as his own dear children, as a father ought. But now thirdly, the third blessing. We've considered election and adoption. Now thirdly, and more quickly, we have redemption. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. This is the idea of being freed from slavery to sin and Satan. Christ has bought us by his blood. He's paid the debt and now we're free. We're no longer slaves to sin. We've been redeemed by his blood. Now let's move on quickly from here to the fourth blessing. And it's the next words. We have forgiveness of our trespasses. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, the forgiveness of sins. You'll, you'll notice we're told that our lives will, be, will not be free from sin, but moreover will be pardoned from sin, will be forgiven from sin. We're told that our sins are no longer to be counted against us. God objectively and unilaterally brought about the forgiveness of our sins and now our records are clean. We have this blessing in Christ that's given to us. And recognize that it's accomplished purely by the unilateral action of God. We needed our sins taken away. We needed our records made clean. And God did the work in making those records clean and forgiving us of our sins and pardoning us. But now fifthly, the fifth blessing. We're told we have wisdom and insight. 
verse 8, which He lavished upon us all in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. The idea here is that God revealed to us His plan. He made known to us his, the mystery of His will. He gave us wisdom and insight to actually know what the blessings are. We're told what His plan was, and now we, we can have it revealed to us. We can know it, contemplate it, and grow in our knowledge of it. We have wisdom and insight in Christ. The idea is that God has not left us in the dark, but He's actually revealed His plan of redemption to us, specifically this idea that in Christ all things are reconciled to Him. But now sixthly and finally, we have a sealing in Christ with the Holy Spirit. A sealing in Christ with the Holy Spirit. Verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. What does it mean that we have a sealing of the Holy Spirit? In those days... You might have put your seal as a family or as a businessman on your property. On, Let's say you sell cattle. You might have put your seal on that cattle. It's the idea of ownership. Okay? Well, we're told we have a sealing from the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It's, it's like we have this inheritance in Christ that's coming at the consummation when Christ comes back. But for the time being, we have this sealing from the Spirit that says we are His. He owns us. We are His property. And beyond that, because we are His we too will inherit the new heavens and new earth. We have a sealing from the Holy Spirit. And Paul's going to open this much more as we get on in the book. There's two observations I want to make regarding all these blessings that we've considered, these six blessings. And that is this. First of all, all these blessings, election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness of sins, wisdom and insight, a sealing from the Holy Spirit, all of these blessings are objective. They're objective. What do I mean by that? I mean objective as opposed to subjective. Objective means they're always true. They're universally true. They're absolutely true. Which is wonderful because, Christian, regardless of the way you feel, regardless of your performance this week, regardless of how much you have thought about these blessings, if you're in Christ, they are objectively true of you. Whether or not you've thought a lot about adoption this week, you are adopted. Whether or not you feel you perfectly understand election, you are elected. Your insight and knowledge into these blessings is not the ground for whether or not you have them. Your faith in Christ to give you these blessings is not the ground by which you have them. The reason you have them is because God objectively gave them to you. And they are always true for you and about you on good days and bad days. They are objectively true of you. You notice nothing in here is said about our personal experience and our feeling of these blessings. It's all about what God has done. What He has done objectively to accomplish this for you, Christian. The second qualifying thought I want to give is this. And that is that all of these blessings, all of these blessings are accomplished by the unilateral action of God. The unilateral... God is the only party who gets the glory for these blessings. He's the only one who acted to give them and secure them for us. God has acted unilaterally before the foundations of the world and in time to give us election, adoption, forgiveness, redemption, and all of the other blessings. Second question I want to ask, and much more quickly here as we move toward concluding, and that is this. How is it that we have come by these blessings? How do we come to have these blessings? 
How is it? What is the means by which God has given us these blessings? And it is that short, profound, mystical, and wonderful phrase, in Christ. We have these blessings in Christ. Now this is just hopefully helpful to you for your study of the book of Ephesians, study of the whole Bible. Whenever you see those words, in Christ, you're to think of your union with Him. That phrase, in Christ, is telling us about our union with the Lord Jesus, our union with Christ. It is that we are attached to Him, that we are in Him, that we are united to Him, that we are in some sense married to Him. To be in Christ is to be united to the Lord Jesus. And this theme of being in Christ, united to Him, runs all throughout the book of Ephesians. We see in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Verse 6, He has blessed us in the Beloved. Verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood. Verse 11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things. Verse 13, In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have these blessings through our union with Christ. The name of Christ in verses 1 through 14 is mentioned 15 times, either by the actual title or personal pronoun. The idea of being in Christ is mentioned 11 times, being united to Him, being attached to Him. All of these blessings are made ours through. Our union with Christ. So we're going to see this theme is picked up again and again throughout the book of Ephesians. And since this subject is so large in the book of Ephesians, since it's so important for us to comprehend it, it's crucial that we understand what it means that we're united to Christ. In the first place, it means that Christ is the means by which we obtain these blessings. How is it that we have them? Because Christ did something in history. I have the forgiveness of sins because Christ came and went to the cross, and by that means... I can be forgiven of my sin. But it's more than that. Commentators will say this, that the idea of being united to Christ is that Christ is the sphere or the location in which these blessings exist. So we only have these blessings so long as we are in Him, united to Him. So it's not like we're saved and God gives us, here's your certificate for election and here's your certificate for adoption and here's your certificate for the forgiveness of sins. Go and hang on to that and show that at the pearly gates and you'll be fine. No, they're actually contained in Christ in some sense. And so the fact that I'm going to be okay, the fact that God is going to look upon us and smile and welcome us into heaven is only if we're in Jesus. If we're in Christ, united to Him. He has to see us through His Son. He has to see us in union with Christ. And all these blessings of being children of God and being called according to His purpose, they're only ours and that we're united to the Lord Jesus. And if we want the fullness of these blessings, we need to press into Christ. Go to Him as the source of these blessings, the location of these blessings, the sphere into which these blessings are revealed. Now understand that's a very abstract thought in some ways. So let me offer this analogy to make it a little more practical, hopefully, to help us understand it. Imagine for me uh, that you are a young woman. Easier for some of us than others to imagine that, okay? Imagine that you're a young woman, okay? And if it helps for the purpose of this illustration, let's just say it's uh, Jane Austen times, whenever that would be, I think early 19th century, okay? She wrote Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, okay? That helps this analogy a little bit if we're in that sort of period, okay? Imagine you're a young woman, and, and this suitor comes, 
And he's in every way wonderful. You just, I mean, he's just, he's so wonderful. He's, who is it? Is it Mr. Bingley, who's the really dashing guy in Pride and Prejudice? He's just so wonderful, so perfect. And you're being courted by him. And you, your heart falls in love with this great suitor. And he marries you. So you're married to him. You're united to him, okay? And he takes you back to his, his big estate. You've never seen it before. And you, you go back with him, and, and it's this, this massive uh, uh, building with uh, 36 rooms. And it's just it's like this palatial mansion. You walk in, and it's just so beautiful. And you go in all these different rooms, and each one is more beautiful than the last one. And uh, uh, he shows you to uh, the room where you're going to sleep. And he shows you the closet. And he's furnished this wardrobe with the finest clothes you could imagine. The finest fabrics and dresses. And he's provided you with all these glorious things to wear and to have. And then you go to dinner. And, and, and he has all these cooks and chefs. And they bring out the, the best food that money could buy. Made with the freshest ingredients. And the table's set before you. And, and you don't even want to touch the silver because it's so precious. It's the finest silver. And you realize, I have really married this wealthy individual. He has all these things. But it gets even better. He takes you to a third floor balcony. And uh, he says, I-, I want you to see something. And you-, you look at the back of his manor. And he's got a thousand acres of the most beautiful and lush green land you've ever seen in your life. And he turns to you. And he says, all of this is yours. Everything we've seen is yours. Because you are mine. And I am yours, and we are one. And you have all of this because we are one, because you are united to me. And therefore, all my property is yours, all my things are yours, all these gifts, all these beautiful uh, uh, rooms, and all this food, and this land, it's all yours because you are mine. And I am yours. You have this because we are one. Before you knew me, before we were married, none of this was yours. You had no claim to it. But now that you are attached to me, now that we're one, This all belongs to you. Now that's wonderful. But then he says this. I have something even greater still. You have my love. You have my heart. You have my affection. There's a distinction I want to make there. In Christ, not only do we have every spiritual blessing through our union with him and being, in a sense, married to Christ. We have all these blessings, all these wonderful uh, truths that are not true of us. But beyond that, we have the love of Christ. We are sealed by the Spirit in union with Him and being united to Him. We are one with Him. And He communes with us. And He wants us to be in relationship with Him. See, there are legal implications and there are experiential implications. Not only do I have all the blessings, I have Him. And I'm in relationship with Him. I am His and He is mine. Well, may God help us to not live on on sort of meager things, but to appreciate the inheritance we have in Christ. May God help us this week to live on the spiritual blessings that we have in the Lord Jesus. And may He help us to press in and to go to Him again and again as the source of these blessings, as the sphere in which these blessings are found. And may we live out our union with Christ. May we recognize all that we have in Him. And may we go to Him and thank Him and commune with Him and live with Him in the context of our union with Him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, there is uh, no tongue among men that can express the glories of the truths contained in this passage that we've looked at today. They are in so many ways too high for us, too lofty for us, too glorious for us, 
too profound for us. We are indeed confounded when we look at your eternal purposes before the foundation of the world to do good toward us. We thank you, Lord, that you have accomplished these things by the unilateral action of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us more and more to live in union with him, to go to him, to thank him, to commune with him, to live in relationship with him as the one in whom we have been reconciled and in whom we have all these spiritual blessings. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask your blessing on us as we seek to live out as those who are united to Christ, to live in holiness, to live in holy fear, to live in, in, in reverence for what you've done through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would help us to live in relationship with the Lord Jesus in such a way that he becomes more precious to us than all the passing pleasures of this world. Thank you for reconciling us in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.